Lesser Light by Matthew Draper Chapter 3 Crumples was waiting for us at the bottom of the stairs when we stepped into my boyfriend's house. My house too now, but his until I moved in. I closed and locked the kitchen door quietly behind us and switched on just the low lights. Rocco would already be sound asleep. He had texted me goodnight before Dylan and I left Halifax. A couple of hours in, he would have passed the snoring stage and fallen into peaceful sleep. Hey, baby! I whispered to Scrumples as the cat swished past my ankles, surprised by our late-night entrance, but excited to get midnight snacks. I shook out some crunchy cat biscuits onto the tiles. If you want to brush your teeth before you go up, I reminded Dylan where the bathroom was. Spare room should be made up, so just make your way up when you're ready. He had stayed before. His latest girlfriend, J-something, H-something... Lived about half an hour away from here by train, so we had been able to welcome him on his journey a couple of times in the last few months. He would head over there tomorrow night for Christmas Eve and catch up with us again in Edinburgh for the wedding at New Year's. Leaving Scrumples and Dylan downstairs, I crept into the bedroom I share with Rocco. He was laying out across the whole bed in a diagonal, but shifted over when I slipped in beside him, stirring but not waking. Rocco and I had met five years ago at a village fete. His village and his fete too. He was one of the organisers of the small village fairground-style community gathering. He had lived in this village for all 27 of his years and was connected to everything and everyone. My good friend Christine, who was now getting married, was then still living in Sheffield and would pick me up every couple of months for a drive to the countryside. We loved to explore random villages, or to visit interesting locations. We had been close friends at St Michael's, and the incident didn't change that, especially because we never mentioned it. The day I met Rocco, Christine had wanted to see the Scarecrow exhibition in a small village called Tantony Edge. Boots on, we had driven into the countryside to walk around the trail. I had researched Tantony Edge ahead of our arrival, and knew they exhibited scarecrows for two weeks a year in the summer, and had done so for nearly 50 years. I hadn't been able to locate a notable queer hero for this particular village, even though there is always one, if you know where to look. A court document, a confirmed bachelor, described as somebody who loved the colour green, or was said to not be able to whistle. If only we had access to them. All kinds of documents can hold a flourishing queer history. On the other hand, a farmer boy turned gas engineer like Rocco may never have written about his love affair begun at the village fate, and we may never read about it. We parked up, by which I mean abandoned Christine's mini-electric precariously close to a ditch, at the outskirts of the village, and made our way through the hedge-lined roads towards the centre, following a route which took us past the majority of the homemade horror show of scarecrow displays. The straw-stuffed models varied in quality and size, from a giant ice cream cone constructed from velvet and umbrellas 
to a cute tiny teddy bear's picnic with paper mache sandwiches peeling in the sun. One house was fronted with an exceptionally glamorous Jill, making her way up a hill, aka green sheets on ropes, with a bucket in one hand and an absolutely crushed Jack beneath her feet. Jill, a mannequin whose elegant dress was draped in luxurious purple material, puffed out by net curtain underskirts wrapped around chicken wire, had an elegant Le Bouton heel on her creepy plastic foot as she stepped over the fallen Jack, the illusion only hampered by a nail hammered through the red sole to hold it in place. Who in this godforsaken town was extra enough to invest in such a shoe for such an event? Gazing up at the house itself, I saw the beautiful grey face of a fluffy cat peering out the front window, frozen in place as if disturbed in a private moment, one leg stuck up in the air. This is how I first met Scrumples. The sound of steel band drums floating on the summer air drew our attention. Christine and I scurried downhill to investigate, finding ourselves at the gates of a village fate field annexed to a tiny chapel. The sight of any church building activated a protective response within me. I touched my thumb against the ring I wore on my left hand, and it began to glow. Closing in on a church or place linked to religion in those days, I had to shrug into my armour. My automatic reaction was to start breathing a prayer, allowing my body to be shielded with an invisible force connected to the source, spreading like light from the ring on my hand. Though Christine did not notice, as we approached, I was mouthing a prayer which would resemble nonsense to anyone who didn't understand the intimate angelic language. The words ran together, like someone attempting to pronounce the whole alphabet. When I was at the Sheffield church, we had learnt to draw spiritual material into the real world. Our spiritual leader, Morgan, encouraged us to have faith in the invisible protection of G. I could feel solid forms surrounding my body. Cuffs clicked together around my wrists, expanding upwards, wrapping a gauntlet of solid protection around my sleeves, clamping shoulder pads into place to hold a breastplate. I touched my waist as I felt the belt of truth rush into place, slipping through the loopholes of my skinny jeans. Tipping back my head, I absorbed the feeling of a helmet rushing outwards from my forehead to the back of my head. A sheet of protective material extending over my eyes, blurring my vision momentarily until I blinked myself back into the moment. Christine was handing a couple of quid to a kindly old woman on the gate as an entrance fee. I pressed my hand against the handle of a sword which extended beside my leg. On my back, a longbow slid into place, arrows rustling together in a quiver over my right shoulder. I followed Christine into the churchyard, which was filled with canopy-covered stools and families buying refreshments from a large marquee tent. They could not see my armour, but I felt safe from them. Separated. Removed. I gave a weak smile to the crypt-keeper at the gate and hurried after Christine.
I had been able to feel the armour surround me when it was needed. Ever since a St. Michael's mission trip to another church community a few years before. We had been ostensibly there to support a church in their community. Though later, Morgan explained the principles of these trips were to remove all the building blocks of a person before building them up again in the image of G. Far from home, out of schedule, humbling jobs, this is the work of God in us to make us new, renewed, rebuilt. We were set to work clearing gardens full of garbage from one end of a street to the other, painting walls for an elderly couple, running craft workshops for local kids, and handing out flyers for a church event on our last day. The first day of the mission trip, we had gathered in a community centre, which doubled as a service space to draw the Holy Spirit down on our plans for the week. Lizzie had written up a chore list, a shopping list, and a spending plan. Christine was doodling inspirational phrases on the back of paper invites to the church, interweaving them with prayers for each message to reach the right person. Let the light in wasn't exactly a specialised message, and read rather more like a horoscope from the local newspaper. She added brightly coloured stickers of smiley faces and rainbows. Sebastian was searching the scriptures, looking for a unique call to place over each of the week's events. I was stood in the centre of the space, in silence, my hands held out in front of me, palms up in the receiving pose. Whispers ran through my head. Over there, to the left, behind you. I raised myself onto tiptoe, closer to G. Felt him touch my outstretched hands. Soft trails of dust tickled along my palms. Glitter falling away through the gaps between my fingers. Every wall of the community centre contained large windows, shuttered with blinds, only half open to shelter the room from the external glare of the midday sun. Jeremy walked the exterior of the room, muttering to himself and dropping to his knees in front of each window, then rising up and pulling down the drawstring to slide the shutters fully open and let the light in. There was that phrase again. I raised my arms out to each side, in the shape of the cross. Sunbeams to my left and right, face front, feet front, eyes front. Morgan had taught us to use our whole bodies in prayer, to lift our hands, to engage with symbols. Reaching over my shoulder, I sensed a quiver filled with arrows, and appearing in my right hand, a longbow, sleek and cold to touch, invisible to anyone else in the room. I pulled arrow after arrow into the ridge of the bow, against the string, fully extended and released them through the now bright, fully exposed windows. Shafts of pure gold whistled through the air, untouched by the walls, and burst across the rooftops of the town. I kept spinning in place, releasing volley after volley of arrows, spinning and spinning. As I prayed, the rest of my armour clanked into place around my spinning body for the first time. Breastplate, belt, shoes, and finally, the ring, slotted onto my finger, as if designed and fitted especially for it. Dylan and Oscar pulled me out of the spiral, breaking the connection by bursting through the front door of the centre with a bag of groceries from Lizzie's list. Come on, lads, let's eat, Dylan cried. After lunch, I washed plates while Oscar dried. 
He was a big guy, taller than me, with wide shoulders and big hands. I handed him the damp crockery, and he dried them with a tea towel. Where'd you get that ring? he asked. I thrust my palms beneath the washing up liquid bubbles, preservation instinct not allowing me to look like an idiot. Slowly, I lifted my left hand free of the water, soapy suds dripping off it. You can see it? There was a ring around my index finger. The ring was not made of any identifiable material. If anything, it felt more like the lack of substance rather than substance itself. The feeling which remains when you expect to hug someone but they do not move into the hug or you miss a step on the stairs. Of course I can, he smiled shyly. It's practically glowing and so are you. I had been embarrassed but secretly pleased to be given such a compliment. The water bubbled over the edges of the washing up bowl into the sink. I mean it, Oscar had said. You were going to do great things. With Gabriel? Or without? Back on the fate field in Tantony Edge, I felt the opposite of glowing. Even though the sun was shining brightly, a shadow had formed around me, along with the triggered armour. Being so close to the chapel, any church building, filled me with a looming sense of impending doom. Still, I trailed after Christine as she investigated the local knitting group stall, threw ping-pong balls into cups to win penny sweets, and posted her vote for the best scarecrow into a shoebox with a hole cut in the top. She was always self-assured, despite her losses. Eventually, I found a fate activity to suit me, a smash cabinet. One pound would get you three wooden balls to throw at an assortment of old plates, pots and unwanted vases which were lined along the shelves of a discarded sideboard. Shards of porcelain were shattered across plastic sheeting in place to protect the grass below. I paid my pound for three to a whiskery gentleman and sent the balls hurtling toward precious china. Again and again, the cracks and crashes were satisfying as blue-painted saucers, mismatched cups and a cow-shaped teapot were sent careening off the shelf. I am not known for being aggressive nor sporty, but permission to rain temporary destruction was too tempting to resist. I could almost see Morgan's blurry face reflected in the painted sheen of china pattern plates. You and your friends are going to destroy us. I could hear his words echo from a previous encounter. You were never supposed to believe that hard. I whipped my final wooden ball like a bowler at a cricket match. It rocketed forward so fast, it blew a hand-painted saucer apart and left a splintering hole all the way through the back of the wooden cabinet built to hold the game. Whoa there. My bowling arm was arrested by a strong hand and I was broken from my reverie enough to notice a farmery lad in navy overalls who had been watching my multiple strikes against his fate flatware. He had jumped in to intervene. Maybe that's enough coconut shy for one day. I wasn't aware how tunnelled my vision had become until I shook my head and brought the fate field back into focus around me. Miles of colourful bunting fluttered from a turreted tent. The steel drum continued to echo around us. A hundred people from the village milled about, and the farmer lad was stood beside me, 
grinning wolfishly. As he led me away from the game stalls and through the folding flap doors of the marquee tent entrance to find a cup of tea, I couldn't say he was very impressed with my sporting prowess. I've been collecting crockery for months for the smash cabinet, and you nearly went through all of it in ten minutes, he told me. I'm Rocco. What's your name? You aren't from around here, are you? Born and grown in Tantony Edge, he knew every Tom, Dick and Harry in this village. Not me, though. I was a Harry from elsewhere. We sat down at one of the fold-out tables, covered in a pink paper cloth, and he handed me a strong tea in a recyclable cup. I noticed his fingernails were painted in the same bright red as the shoes on the Jill Scarecrow. It was yours, I blurted out, putting two and two together. The Scarecrow with the Le Bouton shoe. Rocco laughed. I'll let you in on a secret, he said conspiratorially. They are cheap high heels with nail varnish on the bottom. The grey cat. She's yours then. They are mine. I don't want to push any gender expectations onto a cat. They're called scrumples. Maybe you can meet them sometime. Two months after the fate, and multiple dates later, Rocco was sat on the edge of his bed, holding a hand out, reaching towards me. He wouldn't have seen me unclasp my invisible helmet as I undressed, or noticed as I slipped off the holster of a sword and a quiver of hidden arrows along with my t-shirt. It was time to lay it all down. He watched me with a look on his face, as if I were a puzzle he had only just begun to understand. As if I was one of the most interesting things he had ever seen. As I reached towards him, he caught my hand and pulled me onto the bed. And as I collapsed into his arms, I let my other hand fall away from me, straightening my fingers enough for the immaterial ring to roll down past my knuckle. With a final flick of my thumb, I sent it scuttling across the carpet. As I turned my face up to meet Rocco's gaze, he kissed me softly. The ring, an image of protection I had surely only ever imagined, sank away into the carpet strands, and the space where it used to live on my finger felt free. I'm grounded. I'm safe. And back in the present... Five years later, on Christmas Eve after my friend's pre-wedding party, I slid into bed beside the solid warmth of Rocco's body, and my fingers brushed against the palm of his hand. His fingers closed around mine as he mumbled something in his sleep. I rested my cold cheek against his shoulder. I wouldn't fall asleep for a couple of hours yet. Despite laying down my old armour, on nights when something has shaken me up, my unchecked internal self-defence systems still kick in. Tick! Tick! The electricity meter might click at an inaudible level through the daytime, but it hurts my ears at night when I'm on high alert. Flash! Flash! The internet box illuminated the room like lightning. Under the bed, I could hear scrumples chew at their feet and then scurry into the hall and back again and out again. They clawed at the carpet and bounced about. The ants of anxiety always defy gravity, keeping tension in the top of my body around my chest, the tops of my shoulders, as if they are pulling me up from the bed. Perhaps they are tied into the tides of the moon. I turned over a few times, restless. With my eyes closed, I could still feel the shape of the room, like a blueprint 
imprinted on the inside of my eyelids. I could see more than feel the sparks of adrenaline zigzagging through my arms, up and down them. My feet tapped against the bottom of the bed. I turned over again, and Rocco stirred. I was afraid I would upset him, affect his sleep, and he might wake up frustrated. His slow breathing assured me he was still in deep sleep mode. The sound grated against the edge of my brain, though, scuttling up and down like a long hook being dragged through my thoughts. Creeping downstairs to sip water from the kitchen tap, like a cat, was refreshing enough to reset my mood. I told myself not to be annoyed at the night noises. I knew they were not the real source of my annoyance or fear. I wondered if Dylan was asleep. I hadn't heard him moving. It had been a long time since we shared a house or a space this closely. Better get back into bed before I follow that thought too far. Gee, let me sleep, bring your peace. Gee, let me sleep, bring your peace. Gee, let me sleep. It is not that I believe anymore, but the repeated words still carry weight as they used to and draw me towards the morning. Lesser Light is an online event. Head to lesserlight.blog to join in the comments section or share this story on Facebook, Twitter, Hive or your favourite social media platform. The Lesser Light paperback is available from lulu.com or other booksellers or you can download the ebook now. But remember, no spoilers until New Year's Day. The story is fictional, but if the elements about trauma, cults or recovery have affected you, you can find helplines at lesserlight.blog.